Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. So, Susan, you're actually doing it. You're fleeing the country. I am. I'm getting on the plane, on a plane to go to London in like four hours. They're only back? marginally better off over there, you know. Yeah, is it marginally at this point? I think I could do a passable British accent. Sure. I or like, like fried a Scottish food. Brogue, maybe you like fish and chips. Eh, I could learn to like it. Yeah. Bangers and mash. I like it better than labor camps. So yeah. <laughs> Too Me soon. too. Too dark. No. <laughs> <laughs> the fish and chips or labor camp edition. <laughs> Have you seen the Eddie Izzard, the Caker Death, the uh, Caker Death sketch? <laughs> See me now. Fish and chips or labor camps. <laughs> <laughs> you choose. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the Welcome to the New Not Normal edition. I'm Shane Harris of the Daily Beast. We are in the new not normal, guys. We're a weekend to the transition, and I don't know why we would think any differently. An unorthodox campaign has led to a most unorthodox transition. May it never feel normal. <laughs> Not sure it can. Uh, you know, one of the uh, lovely things about this transition uh, is that it is a reminder of how... Uh, Little we appreciate the day-to-day work of sane government, right? That how much, how much, uh, work actually goes into making things not completely chaotic. How many human hours are associated with making sure the president or the president-elect is capable of making, of receiving a call from a foreign leader, uh, and is briefed on the appropriate things in that regard. Uh, how, how many hours it takes to choose people for your transition team who are not uh, crazy bigots. And, you know, we don't appreciate... That does take a while. Yeah, we don't... We don't Apparently. We, we, we don't actually appreciate that about normal transitions because this is the first time we've ever seen one where none of that work is happening. And this is what happens when none of Remember that work happens. Remember how people used to be disqualified from the transition for, like, not paying the right part of their nanny's taxes? Yeah. Right. And that was considered... Oh, those were the days. Aww. Just some unpaid... <laughs> Employment tax. Wow. Uh, well, we're going to get to all of it. Uh, of course, I'm here with my friends, uh, Tamara Kaufman Wittis, Ben Wittis, and Susan Hennessy. Hi, guys. And we are breaking out the scotch. Woo! We're doing it, baby. <laughs> um, this week on the podcast, the Trump administration transition has begun, right? We think it has. We think this is a transition. It's a transition to something. It's something. Things are happening. Uh, the president-elect sits down with 60 Minutes for his first major interview and leaves the fate of FBI Director James Comey uncertain, and foreign governments begin to react to Trump's election. Plus, object lessons, they're back, uh, and not just scotch. Um, all right, well, let's get to, back to the question of the transition. Okay, so if we're just sort of taking the the measurement at day, what, I guess this is day seven. or. Oh, my we, God. It's only day it's only, seven? No, seriously. It's been a week, you guys. This is going to be the seven. longest four years ever. Right. Oh um, so just let me give my sort of quick impressions maybe just from reporting on it this week, and then we can all dive in on it. Um, this is it's a highly unorthodox transition in many ways. Um, it is not clear who is actually speaking for the transition. It's not clear who is running the transition. For a while, we thought it was Governor Chris Christie. He was then forced out in what some people from the inside the campaign are calling a purge. One person described it as a Stalinist purge. Uh, Mike Pence is now running the transition, although for several days he had not signed the documents that you have to sign to actually be in charge of the transition. Um, it appears that there has been, uh, well, not appears, there hasn't been any meeting uh, between the transition team and the Pentagon transition apparatus. Because the Trump people 
didn't show up Correct. to the meeting. Nor did they show up to their meetings with the Department of Transportation, the Department of Energy, which is responsible for our right. nuclear weapons. Right. Uh, and, and again, it's, it's, it's just not clear uh, who is or isn't in. We can talk about that. Who does or does not speak on behalf of the transition there? What, what is clear is that there are conflicting statements coming out, which I presume to be, you know, coming from different factions within either the Chris Christie people in his group or Jared Kushner and his folks or Steve Bannon and his folks. And presumably there's some overlap in between these. Uh, but yeah, I mean, essentially that and we have saw the obviously the Oval Office meeting between President Obama and President-elect Trump, uh, which Trump said it was a, supposed to be for 10 minutes and it went for 90. Um, the subtext that I took away from that was I'm imagining Donald Trump clinging to Barack Obama by his jacket saying, please don't leave, please don't leave, please don't leave. Because what's become pretty clear, and this has come out in subsequent reporting, is that they don't really have a firm grasp of how hard this is going to be or what it was going to take and find themselves now in a position of um, pretty profound ignorance about the process. Uh, whether or not that is actually rattling them is hard for me to detect, whether they're just going to wing it and think we know how to do this and it will be fine, or whether there is some sense of crisis that is actually gripping <clears throat> the president-elect, who I noted last night uh, gave the slip to his pool after they had declared a lid, which is sort of the go-home-no-more-coverage. Uh, and went out and had dinner at the 21 Club, which I believe was the first time he left his house in seven days. Which so, is also interesting. So the the inexperience and the slow start in and of themselves, I don't find as troubling as some other features of what we've seen over the last week. Um, okay, some people don't come to this job with experience. Some of their senior advisors don't come to this job with experience. And frankly, all the experience in the world can prepare you to some extent. But this is one of the hardest jobs in the world. It's one of the most complex organizations to run in the world. And so, you know, he had no government experience, which is also why a lot of people voted for him. Right. So, you know, you can start from behind the curve and and just got to make that curve as sharp as you can. I can forgive that almost. But I think that there are a few things about how they're dealing with that that I find particularly troubling. One is um, that the lack of experience and the lack of their ability to bring in experienced people means that they are very much subject to um, persuasion by advice, you know, from the people that they do trust, whether that advice is informed or ill-informed, whether it's agendaed or objective, uh, whether it's good or bad. So, you know, members of Congress who themselves might not, uh, fully, you know, have the context of an issue or, or be thinking about the trade-offs can push various specific uh, agendas forward. Foreign governments, those who are willing to breach protocol, call Trump Tower directly and uh, be pesty enough to get on the phone with the president-elect, can jump the gun of the president-elect's preparation and have conversations and try and win commitments on issues where, you know, a, a, a more prepared president-elect wouldn't um, be subject to that kind of influence. So that troubles me. It troubles me that uh, they have they have been entirely unable to attract uh, senior, experienced foreign policy and national security professionals to the transition. And, you know, we discussed last week the dilemmas of such people in weighing whether or not to serve in a Trump administration, but the underlying call to public service, the fact that so far, um, not a single senior respected national security uh, career person has been willing to step into one of those roles on behalf of now the president-elect, says to me that even that call to public service in the face of all of this uncertainty and danger is insufficient, um, given what they must have learned through these conversations or what they see as this transition invo- evolves. That troubles me. And Elliot Cohen me. said as much in his Washington Post article. And Elliot Cohen said as much in his Washington Post article. And this brings me to the third thing, which is what Elliot really pointed out in that piece, was the degree of um, vengefulness, petty rivalry, infighting that we see that Elliot described based on his conversations that were reported in the New York Times uh, over the last 24 hours. It really suggests that 
these this group of people who are now responsible for something truly important, not only to hundreds of millions of Americans, but to people around the world, don't weigh that responsibility enough to overcome their own petty squabbling. Right. I mean, look, I, I do think it's um, uh, we're moving in the wrong direction. Um, uh, what we should what should have happened is that we were sort of um, we were at the bottom in the day after election. Everyone was stunned. We were sort of reeling. And then, um, uh, you know, sort of uh, things things should have emerged. Information sort of emerged over over the coming days that um, uh, were reassuring. Right. So the announcement of senior officials, um, you know, uh, uh, soothing words from uh, from President Obama, the reconciliation. Right. The transition process is not um, is not just the actual transition. It's also seeing a functional transition that reassures the American people that actually the government is going to continue to run on January 21st. Um, so I think that uh, and and uh, that anxiety, particularly in the national security community, is only increasing. Mm-hmm. Um, so in sort of the, the days immediately after the election, um, you know, all of these names were being offered. You know, some of them were sort of out there, but, you know, a plenty of names, some of which we talked about last week. You know, Stephen Hadley, uh, you know, Mike Rogers running the transition team. Um, you know, those are... You know, you might disagree with them on, on particular policy proposals, but, you know, reasonable, responsible, non-ideological, uh, experienced people. Um, uh, that pool of people is getting smaller and smaller because either people are eliminating themselves from it and refusing to serve. People are saying they haven't been contacted. Um, uh, and to sort of fill the vacuum, right, we're having more and more alarming names emerge, right? So, um, so not just names of uh, hateful Islamophobes like Frank Gaffney. Um, uh, but people who have no experience, no credibility, right? Um, the notion that uh, Donald Trump, uh, you know, he's reportedly uh, requested a security clearance either for all of his children or just for Jared Kushner, his son-in-law, who he intends to keep with him in the PDB. Um, that's really troubling about what, uh, how Donald Trump <laughs> um, intends to think about receiving uh, an intelligence briefing, right? Uh, the PDB is highly technical, really in the weeds, very very consequential stuff. Um, I should say to you, just not to interrupt, there's, there's nothing even approaching precedent for having your relative in the meeting while you get the most secret information that the United States government collects. Although he definitely has the authority to give that clearance, doesn't he? Well, so I think it's a, sort of right. It's it's a difficult question, and 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 they we might end up having uh, to to sort of address it on, on whether or not uh, Kushner actually can get the clearance. Um, but I think sort of more alarmingly, it's a question of um, uh, does Donald Trump? It, it's an indication that that really Donald Trump does think that this is um, that he's going to wing it. Um, that this is sort of this is going to be about instinct because Kushner has no experience, no expertise on military issues, on on foreign policy. Right? He has no background whatsoever. So the notion that that is the person he's looking to, um, somebody who is a, a source of sort of familiarity or, or comfort in terms of a gut check by Donald Trump, that, that indicates a hostility both to expertise and also somebody who um, really doesn't get it, also, really doesn't get the role here. Do you think it also speaks to, and then Ben, I want you to chime in too, but just as, as a thought here, to me, and I'm just reading this in lots of other actions and and and, and inactions, speaks to some profound anxiety. I mean, if, if what you're clinging to is this person who's your son-in-law who you have this, you know, outsized trust for that he does not have for any of his other children, including his daughter, who's probably sort of second down in the most next most trusted. It's like it's like how he there's talk about him wanting to be in New York half the time because he doesn't want to stay in the White House. It's like this speaks to somebody like who's sort of afraid to step outside of the bubble and take is, on these responsibilities. So the cl- he's surrounding himself with these sort of comfort Buffers. points, yeah. so including I, I, in the PDB. I, 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 but I, this is the classic behavior of an authoritarian, only trusting your family, having an incredibly insular circle. I mean, right. Saddam Hussein, Gaddafi. I mean, this is they all relied on their families. That's how this that that's the mindset here. So I think there's a few. So th- this is the ultimate case that I think any of us have ever seen of the dog that catches the mail truck. Right. You know, and the mail bullet train is what he caught. This yeah. Time. And, and I, I think it's reasonable to expect that whatever he says about his expectations, he never actually thought he was going to win. I think that's right. Right. Um, so he does, and he, and, and the concept of preparation 
this is a very non-methodical person. And so when the dog catches the male van or the male bullet train, um, a lot of things come out. And one is this, who are, who are my comfort objects, right? And that's the, the Jared Kushner role. But the second is he's clearly angry that he caught the, you know, he's really angry at the van, right? He's tickled by the, that he caught it. But he's really – and that's what you're seeing with the Elliot Cohen stuff, right? And so rather than saying, okay, wow, I caught this thing. I need to uh, double back on the expertise of the people in the mail van, right? And uh, the people who know how to drive this thing, who know what it is, who know what it does, who have some understanding of how the mail system works – He's there's a certain amount of lashing out at that, um, and then there is the point. Uh, the point that Susan makes is, I think, exactly right, which is once you've lashed out at all those people, and once you've then, in addition, uh, for whatever reason, gotten rid of the Chris Christies and the Mike Rogers of the world, who are among other things, able administrators, whatever else one says about them. And Mike, in Mike Rogers' case, was a very bipartisan and thoughtful leader of the Intelligence com- uh, Committee. So, you know, once you've gotten rid of all those people, then you have a vacuum that you can only fill with the Frank Gaffneys and, and, and Steve Bannons of the world. And so I think I agree that the 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 situation that we confront here is is well first of all it's quite predictable from last week but it is worse than 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 it was last week um and uh we are you know uh, in a situation to use another metaphor one I'll borrow from from Donald Trump okay if you drain the swamp you have two problems. One is, what are you going to do with all that water? Right? You, you've, you've, and the second is, what are you going to do with that land? Are you going to build a beautiful Washington DC, which is on a drained swamp? Or are you going to, uh, you know, have a muddy, kind of former Everglades. And they've given absolutely no thought to this. And they've pretty successfully drained the swamp, if you define the swamp as all the expertise of the Republican Party. <laughs> right? I mean, they've, 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 they have access. They, they've, they could have had access to it. And they've drained themselves of all access to it. And the question is, first of all, what do you do with the water? The entire brain trust of the Republican Party is the water here and they're really upset and they're really angry and they're really scared. And the second is, what do you replace them with? And the answer so far seems to be you say to the water, fuck you. And the answer in the in the in the what do you do with the swamp is you fill it with Frank Gaffney. Yeah. And Steve Bannon. Okay, so worst just, swamp ever. Worst <laughs> swamp ever. So let's let's just if we can I I'm Mildly uncomfortable at the, all the speculation about motives because I think that actually what's most challenging here and most upsetting, um, it, it, setting aside the the bigotry of the Steve Bannons and Frank Gaffneys, what's what's most upsetting is the uncertainty. It's the black hole. It's the vacuum. And I think it's upsetting not only because it's evidence of lack of seriousness. Um, but it's upsetting because of its implications. And Susan, you made a really important point, which is that the, the ritual of the transition itself has a reassuring effect. And it has that effect typically on the American public, but also on the world. All of these, uh, governments around the world, adversaries and allies need to see that ritual in order to have some sense of continuity and confidence in what is coming next and that they can deal with it. And in an environment of such uncertainty, of such a vacuum, and such evidence of unseriousness as well, I think it exacerbates all the things we talked about last week in terms of self-help behavior by friends and what's likely to be uh, testing by adversaries. And I think it's no accident that the Russians and the Syrians, for example, started a new onslaught against Aleppo yesterday because they've now judged over the last seven days that, you know, this is a space in which they can achieve goals without any pushback at all 
because there's a vacuum in Washington. And that, from an international security perspective, could be very, very dangerous. Well, so I think that this is this is the part that, that's the scariest, and I think it's why um, people in Washington are um, are so nervous and so upset. Look, there, there is a part of the government that pretty much functions on autopilot. There are certain things that even if nobody in the White House showed up on the 21st, like, they would still happen. Um, but there are some things that won't, right? There are some things that the president has to make decisions about every single day, um, his, and his senior staff has to make decisions about. And those things tend to be the most important parts of the government, the most consequential decisions, right? Those things that they get pushed all the way up to the top. And if there's nobody there, uh, just nothing happens. And and I think there's there's genuine fear about uh, you know, what is going to happen whenever, uh, you know, the Pentagon picks up the phone and, and nobody at the White House answers. Um, <clears throat> let's move on to the next segment here. Um, I want to talk about this interview that uh, Trump did with 60 Minutes. Leslie Stahl uh, did the interview. Uh, traditionally, well, I don't know traditionally, but for a number of cycles now, I think 60 Minutes has been doing these sort of first big sit-downs. Uh, Wall Street Journal did a long print interview with him, and so far those are the two that he's done. Actually, his very, very first interview was to Sheldon Adelson's Hebrew newspaper. Oh, as president-elect? Yes. Wow. Boaz Bismuth of Israel Hayom. Um, this, this is, so one of the things came out of the interview. That's that, not good for the Jews. <laughs> <laughs> Just saying. <laughs> Just saying. Um, you know, a number of interesting things came out of this interview, and we should talk about them because they are really some of the most substantive comments that he's given so far about how he intends to run the government that he has given us every signal he does intend to run. Um, uh, seemed to soften a bit on the question of whether the border wall was going to actually be a wall. He said it might be a fence in some places. Uh, seemed to backpedal a little bit on the deportation of immigrants, saying he would focus mostly on the criminals first and the two to three million of them. He's not sure how many there are. Either deport them or imprison them. We can talk about whether there's actually room in U.S. prisons to hold two to three million people. Um, not a ton uh, coming out of national security uh, uh, other than to once again reiterate that he thinks that the generals are failing and that he knows more about them than about fight ISIS. Uh, once again said it was stupid to signal that we were invading Mosul, even though there are perfectly good and sound and recommendable reasons to do that. Uh, and then was asked also the question of whether or not uh, he wanted James Comey to resign. Uh, and he said, I'm not sure. We'll have to think about that. So some of the, I'm curious what you all made of the interview and, and what of the things that stood out to you as significant. I mean, to me, he, he did sort of project a certain level of, I don't know if humility is the right word, because I'm not really sure that that's something that he's ever evinced. But there's kind of a little bit of a chastening, maybe, that you tend to see. When we saw it in Obama's 60 minute interview in 2008, where they realized what's the gravity of what's coming on to them. But then there were moments where he started to get perturbed. And it reminded me of in the debates how he would sort of start out kind of on a calm level and then get very agitated and then retreat to some of these, you know, maxims and, you know, and ideas of, well, the generals are failing, but we have great people in the military. I mean, got to be very contradictory. Um, I, yes, I walked away with it not feeling that I was very illuminated uh, about what he plans to do. Well, so I, I would say that interview in and of itself would have been a step forward if it weren't for the chaotic uh, transition uh, news that we've already discussed, if it weren't for the uh, crazy tweets that he sent out about protesters and the New York Times. He, he does seem to be really continuing his vendetta against the New York Times. Um, I, you know, I think in and of itself, most of that interview was relatively responsible for him. And I do think he said one thing in that interview that was quite shameful that he hadn't said earlier but uh, very important that he said then, which was that he did, and we should note this, he did call on his supporters to stop harassing uh, or engaging in uh, – uh, hate crimes against minority groups. The and same day he he appointed Steve Bannon senior counsel to the White House. Correct. He also and, appeared and, not to know the extent of these incidents, or at least pretended to. Or pretended. And to. so I I think that I think that just as he uh, look, I mean, 
there's many levels, many axes and, of, and levels on which we're going to end up evaluating this presidency. Um, one is the aggregate mood, right? Mm-hmm. But one is the individual things that he did and, and does and says. And just as he deserves severe, severe criticism for the ban on appointment, I think it is notable that he did say the right thing, albeit belatedly, with respect to this spate of vandalisms and harassments and, uh, in some cases, violent incidents uh, since his election and, frankly, before his election. So I, 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 I don't want to fail to give him credit for that. On the other hand, what he said about the FBI director is a shameful and dangerous thing, and, uh, and it hasn't gotten nearly enough attention. This is a man who uh, asked directly, would you remove the FBI director? Do you mean to remove the FBI director? Said, I would want to have a conversation with him about why he did what he did. So let's translate that into English for a minute. Um, The FBI director conducted an investigation of a U.S. citizen and concluded on the basis of that investigation that there was no basis to bring criminal charges against this person. The fact that her name is Hillary Clinton is irrelevant. Um, the president-elect, without the benefit of any investigation, declared that, quote, everyone knows she's guilty. And for him to remove the FBI director because the FBI director's investigation did not support his pre-cooked notion of a the guilt of a citizen of this country is almost the textbook definition of a violation of the oath to take care that the laws be faithfully executed. And I'm amazed that there is um, not more stunned outrage. And I think people think, well, okay, he has the authority to remove the FBI director, so he's allowed to talk about removing the FBI director. He also, you know, he, he doesn't, it's a crime to remove the FBI director if you get paid a bribe in order to do it. And it's a grave, grave breach of all of our constitutional expectations to remove a law enforcement officer for clearing somebody in good faith of a crime. So I, I also think that sort of the Comey comment is the most significant thing to come out of um, uh, that interview. Um, you know, prior to that, uh, you know, Ben and I had written a piece sort of about the importance of preserving Comey. Um, you know, I think it's important that um, that the media take a role here and that experts take a role. Um, uh, it is not normal, speaking of the do not normal, it is not normal to remove an FBI director. And um, uh, we're seeing someone who is prepared to seriously transgress norms, either because he doesn't understand them um, or because he doesn't care about sort of the backlash. And so it's really, really clear that people be alert about uh uh, sort of the difference between the technical ability to do so and the fact that this is a really big deal. You know, going back, I, I think the writing is on the wall a little bit here. And if we go back to the transition purge, um, we actually have sort of an interesting uh, use case of, of where Donald Trump's headspace is here. And that's that the reports about the reasons why uh, Chris Christie and everyone associated with him was purged from the transition team is not because of the Bridgegate scandal. It's because Jared Kushner... Uh, has a personal vendetta against Chris Christie because Chris Christie, as a U.S. attorney, a law enforcement officer, prosecuted Kirshner's father. That is, uh, for sort of the, the information coming out of the transition, um, that appears to be the actual animating principle here. So we've seen at least one use case of... Uh, of this uh, administration uh, holding someone accountable for the unquestionably faithful execution uh, of their uh, of their uh, job, right? I just want to point out that that's probably the first time that the words unquestionably faithful have been used in the same sentence with Chris Christie <laughs> in, in a good long time. Oh, for the good old oh, days. Oh, the new not normal. You yeah. know, and, and look, that's... Um, 
this is significant. Obviously, removing someone from your transition team, that's he, that's well within his authority. That's, you know, fine. That's kind of his discretion. The FBI director is a step in the next direction. If we don't start drawing lines here about what is acceptable and unacceptable, uh, we're going to get to a place where he's starting to do things that are plainly illegal, right? I, I just you wake up, people. Yeah, so I, I think that that was... I, I would agree with both of you who are citing this as a sort of red flag within the, the 60 Minutes interview. I do think it's worth pointing out that, that Leslie Stahl also asked him directly about whether he wanted to appoint a special prosecutor to investigate Hillary Clinton and try to put her in jail. Um, she asked that question outright and followed up, and he just said, well, I'm going to think about it, but she did some bad things. And, you know, he he also said, well, I don't want to hurt her. And he said, I have other priorities. But he didn't rule it out. And he promised 60 Minutes an answer on this question the next time they did an interview. So, you know, I I think he's sending some... Keep you in suspense. Right. Yeah, right. Keep you in because it's all great entertainment. You know, I, I do think he's sending some pretty clear signals that at a minimum, he wants to keep this issue out there as leverage over people over Hillary Clinton and her family, over Jim Comey and his job. And, you know, if that's the way he's using the power of the presidency, um, then I think we have to worry about exactly the kind, the kind of development that Susan's talking about. And, and I couldn't agree more, Susan, on the need to draw clear lines about what is not normal, what is exceptional, what is really so unusual that it should have a higher level of scrutiny. And I think the challenge is that he's his behavior is so outrageous that pe- people become inured. And there is so much happening every day that it's a challenge for the media to cover it. It's a challenge for the public to absorb it. It's a challenge even for experts to parse it and to make those distinctions clearly and publicly in a way that's meaningful. Um, let's talk about foreign government and international reaction now to um, to Trump's election. Uh, <clears throat> Vladimir Putin sent a telegram, uh, I guess, in the early morning hours of Wednesday, congratulating him. Uh, there's been talk that he might make a first visit to Moscow. Uh, where else? Where, where else, else where could else? he go for his first visit? Um, uh, Tomorrow, what, what what has impressed you, concerned you? Been notable to you about some of these uh, international reactions as the, as they're coming in. Okay, starting so, with the fact that they probably don't formal, follow the normal pattern either of how uh, international congratulations and reactions come in. So you know, typically, again, we go back to sort of the patterns of history. Typically, a president elect very carefully sets out an order for the phone calls that he or she, but historically he would make to foreign leaders. Okay, they all try to call. They all try to reach the president-elect. They send telegrams. They make public statements. But the president-elect then reaches out in a very specific thought-through order to designate who's closest to the United States, who's most important to him, what signals does he want to send? Because, of course, every utterance of a president sends a signal. Um that's not what happened in this case. This is another uh, break from precedent. Uh, Trump took calls that came in through the Trump Tower switchboard, apparently. he uh, Are those calls actually considered to contain classified information since they're between foreign leaders and a president-elect? And was uh, that on a secure line? Um, I would be shocked if they've been able to secure the line to Trump Tower at this point. I mean, nothing is is classified just by virtue being classified. There has to be a classification decision made. Um, But that's one of the reasons why you actually have a planned uh, first communication with foreign leaders so that you can do so in a secure area on a secure line and not say from your apartment on okay. a uh, on a on a phone line with a switchboard. Okay, right. so that didn't happen. Sorry. So tomorrow. that didn't happen. So apparently he spoke first to uh, Egyptian President El Sisi, I guess. Uh, also up there in the first few was uh, Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu. Um, but I think it was another interesting tidbit, actually, in the 60 Minutes interview was Trump telling Leslie Stahl about all, all the foreign leaders calling, and he seemed sort of surprised by this, and he said, you know. 
it really shows the power of our country. Right. He said with some surprise that all these world leaders want to call me and say congratulations, which again is sort of mystifying that he hadn't grasped what it was what? he was getting into. And he sort of took what is normal protocol as flattery. Right. Like they were just so happy about us and me and that they called in. It's like, no, no, this is a thing. <laughs> <laughs> it's a thing and it's not about you. It's, it's about, about the United States all. of America. It's a grapefruit. They yeah. would have but, called yeah. today. But I yeah. actually think that some of America's uh, traditional very close partners took the opportunity to issue statements in ways that themselves sent a message, most notably uh, the the leader who I think is likely to emerge as the leader of the free world if the president of the United States des- declines to play that role, and that's Angela Merkel of Germany. She issued a, a very uh, interesting pointed statement. She said, Germany and America are connected by values of democracy, freedom and respect for the law and the dignity of man independent of origin, skin color, religion, gender, sexual orientation, or political views. I offer the next president of the United States close cooperation on the basis of these values, which is a very sharp reminder that at the heart of the NATO alliance, at the heart of the Western alliance, is a set of shared commitments to democracy and human rights. And in a way, it was worded almost like a statement that a Western leader would send to, you know, the first democratic elected leader of some, you know, country going through a political transition. Like, here are my expectations for you. Or that Germany would would say to congratulate uh, Erdogan on his uh, victory. Very conditional. These are the things we expect from you rather than taking these things for granted. And to me, it was a signal not only of Merkel's intentions, which I admire, but also a signal of what the new not normal is in international affairs for the United States, which is that premises of uh, world leaders' engagement with the United States that we have taken for granted for a long time now need to be made explicit mm-hmm. and uh, and set up as expectations and tested. And uh, and it so it was a strikingly quick re- uh, response to that reality. I thought from uh, the German leader. Right. Look, I think um, I think our partners are um, dumbfounded right now um, and are looking for um, are looking for analogies. Um, so I have heard people sort of use reference to Erdogan. Um, so uh, some of the things that uh, Erdogan does when he gets mad at people is, I don't know, you know, remove the security detail from embassies. Right. There's there's all sorts of these little petty vindictive things, um, you know, that, that countries are used to dealing with um, with certain countries, um, uh, traditionally countries that have, you know, uh, asymmetrically limited power, right, and so sort of um, uh, engage in, in these kinds of tactics. And, and I think they're thinking about um, the consequences of uh, if that occurs <laughs> in, in the place in which, you know, the United States, um, uh, you know, that is not an asymmetric authority and, and really can cause tremendous damage. And so I, I think there are people are walking on on eggshells, right? People here being sort of foreign leaders. You know, the other thing that I think in terms of foreign nations that just can't, it can't be overlooked. And that's that, you know, Admiral Rogers um, gave an interview yesterday in which he said, um, you know, let me be clear. This, this, you know, he's sort of talking about WikiLeaks and, and intervention in, in, the, in the election. He said, uh, let me be clear, this was not done casually. Um, you know, this was a foreign government uh, working to achieve a specific effect, right? That is Admiral Rogers saying the Russians intended to get Donald Trump elected and it worked. That is hugely significant it's hugely consequential not just for 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 us but it's hugely consequential to foreign governments who are looking to him right now and saying are you our ally or are you Putin's ally? And I think that, you know, just like Donald Trump has a, a real obligation here to step up and reassure the American people. And, and I disagree with, with you, Ben, that, that saying stop it was at all sufficient to sort of the spate of hate crimes. I didn't say it was sufficient. I, I, I don't even <laughs> extend it. I don't even extend credit to him for sort of looking at the camera and saying, well, I say I, he said, if it, if it helps, I say stop it. You know, I think I think the burden on him is to make a, a big impassioned speech and plea uh, just uh, along lots of different metrics, you know, calm, calm tensions in the United States, uh, calm, uh, you know, calm our, our foreign government, uh, foreign allies and, and that he's just utterly failed. So so let me uh, s- s- since uh 
somebody other than Susan might have mistook my meaning. Uh, let me clarify what I did and didn't mean to say. Um, uh, until that interview, Donald Trump had said absolutely nothing about... Uh, no, he'd called the protesters unfair and professional protesters. That's no, no, no I'm not said. talking about the protests. I'm talking about the spate of uh, hate crimes and harassments of, of, of random minorities uh, uh, all over the country. Um, and the swastika paintings and the, you know, the all sorts of vandalisms chanting, and chantings chanting, and, and deportation, and, deportation um, in schools. You know, and he had said absolutely nothing. And it was, uh, very, very notable that he had said absolutely nothing. And so it is the, the, the conspicuousness of how, of his not having said anything, therefore makes it, uh, unduly conspicuous that for the first time he had something to say about it. And uh, what he said was uh, completely inadequate, but it was the first thing he'd said about it. And it's good that he said something. I mean, fair. Like I, I, <laughs> a low bar cleared. Lo, uh, right. Low bar. But, but I do think that this is an area in which um, we're, we're going to have to moderate sort of uh, – uh, you know the the low low expectations of Donald Trump and sort of and and being clear about uh, where he gets credit for things. Yeah, I don't I don't want to engage in what uh, an honorable conservative president George W. Bush would call the soft bigotry of low expectations. Yeah. What Good Trump point. said was uh, uh, unacceptably uh, modest, um, but it was different from saying nothing. And so I would say he has much more obligation to say much more. And in fact, yesterday, uh, uh, Nora Ellingson and I wrote a piece suggesting that he really should go to Kansas, uh, to, uh, with the current president to, uh, the city where a local Somali immigrant community was targeted with a potential very serious terrorist attack that the FBI foiled. Um, so I, I think he should do much, much more than he's done. But I do note that there is at least some difference between doing absolutely nothing and saying absolutely nothing and saying stop it. Yeah. And, and we have just, just to kind of continue very briefly on the foreign government reactions. Um, would we expect that if he proceeds in these, these, these very unorthodox ways, not just the, the order of taking phone calls or how to, how to place them, when would we see some pushback? I mean, Merkel already clearly signaled, hey, we're watching you and kind of putting him on notice in a sense and saying to the world, we are treating this for the extraordinary thing that we think that it is. When would we expect we might start to see pushback from other countries? I mean, what would that look like? I mean, would these be like demarches? Would they be, you know, tit for tat kind of things? And I'm, I guess I'm really right. talking here about our allies, not so much our adversaries. Yeah, absolutely. It's definitely our allies that have the most to lose um, if these premises of, of U.S. foreign policy fall by the wayside. And they also have, at least in theory, the most potential influence. I, I don't think you'd see it in the form of demarches. I do think there's expectation setting. Um and that's already started to some extent, not only Merkel's statement, but the EU foreign ministers who met right after the election to consider the outcomes, you know, issued a, a statement in which they laid out some of their core uh, foreign policy concerns, including, you know, sustaining the Iran deal. Um, and so I, I think that they will continue to do that sort of unilateral communication of priorities and concerns. And I guess there are really two theories about how this will play out. One theory is that Trump doesn't know anything. He's, you know, this isn't his main priority. And so they could set the agenda for him and they're going to be very proactive about reaching out. I, I understand that a lot of our partner governments, that's the way they're taking this, that they are really going out of their way to try and arrange visits to Washington, to talk to relevant interlocutors and just they want to be part of educating the new president. Um, but the other way this may, might play out is that, in fact, Trump does have instincts on foreign policy. They may not be developed policy proposals, but he he's a mercantilist. He's suspicious of Ameri America playing the role of security guarantor. He doesn't like carrying an undue burden. These are very longstanding, consistent instincts of his. And so maybe he's not quite as educable 
as these partners will assume. And if they if they come in with this outreach and lay out their expectations, they might find that they're getting pushed back from him. I also think it's relevant to note that, you know, in these countries, they themselves are seeing a surge of right-wing extremist populism, right? So I had not seen the final uh, Austrian election uh, results as of this morning, but as of last night, there was a razor-thin sort of vote count going on between their uh, far-right Breitbart-esque Donald Trump figure there. Um, the rise of Marine Le Pen in uh, in France, uh, you know, sort of threatening there. Um, so so I, I also think it's sort of, it's it's significant that um, uh, they're looking at us, but they're also looking at themselves um, because th- whatever happened last week, um, it's happening all over the world. And, and uh, it, it must be terrifying to them. Uh, one, to have lost an ally and an example in the United States, um, and, and two, to see some of those same instincts within their own borders. One other thing, uh, just picking up on both of those last two points. I mean, the Austrians, of course, know something about far-right extremism. Um, and um, But I think if you are Vladimir Putin, your eye is not really on Austria. Um, it's on the Baltic states. And the the points that both Susan and Tamara make uh, are really not lost on the advers on our adversary powers. And you're thinking, if you're Vladimir Putin today, do I have an opportunity that did not exist a week ago to blow a hole in in the Western alliance? And will you know, just as the Western European allies and, for that matter, the Eastern European allies are thinking about trying to educate Trump to the uh, historical value of these uh, alliances against his, um, you know, mercantilist and do they pay kind of instincts. Uh, the adversary powers, particularly Putin, are looking at this situation and saying, can we exploit this to destroy this alliance once and for all? And so I think, you know, Putin's already played in these waters very aggressively and very successfully. That's what the Ukraine operation was fundamentally about. Uh, and I think we have to pay very special attention to the Baltic countries in the early days and months and throughout a Trump administration uh, to because if you want to destroy NATO, uh, Estonia is a really good way to do it. And the fact that there is some doubt in everybody's mind as to whether the United States would actually go to bat in a military sense for Estonia, for Latvia, for Lithuania that is an invitation to Putin to try things that I don't think he would try in the event that he were fully confident that we would uh, invoke our Article 5 responsibilities with respect to NATO. So if you're going to launch a military campaign against one of these states, January 21st, 2017? Well, you'd want to get sanctions lifted first, right? Yeah, look, I, I actually, I don't know that Putin needs to do something quite so in your face, if you will. Um, I think that he's got a lot of scope in the next two months to uh, solidify his position in Syria, in uh, Eastern Europe. He doesn't need to attack the Baltics. He's got Poland going off track uh, from a from a Western perspective. Hungary, um, that that uh, the consolidation of uh, Western democratic norms in Central and Eastern Europe is already deeply threatened by Putin. He's already been very successful and he can do much more through subversion and undermining than he can through a direct military confrontation, which might actually galvanize a more unified response from Europeans than uh, than anything else. See, so I, you know, I, I, you're right to sort of flag that, Ben. I don't want to rule it out. I just don't think it's the likeliest pathway forward for him. And I think that clearly, you know, the and there's been a Putin-Trump interaction already, too, since the election. And the and Putin's government's readout of that uh, was all about U.S.-Russian cooperation. And so he's trying to rattle 
America's European allies. He's trying to rattle our allies in other regions and get them to believe that they can no longer rely on the United States. He doesn't have to throw it in Washington's face. But I don't think we should I don't think we should underestimate the um, signs of an emerging kleptocracy here and, and the Russians' deafness in playing in that space. Um, one of the most troubling things that came out immediately after the election um, is uh, Mike Flynn, who was, uh, of course, former DIA director and one of uh, Donald Trump's senior uh, advisors, uh, wrote an op-ed where he, where he um, uh, uh, compared uh, Gulen uh, to Osama bin Laden and essentially said that, that we should extradite him. Um, it, since that uh, article was published, it's come out that Flynn's uh, firm has been paid by the Turkish government. Um, uh, of course, uh, traditionally extradition decisions are made by, uh, uh, by the Justice Department, right? Whether or not a, a country that we have an extradition treaty with has legally satisfied um, those obligations uh, and, and those standards. Um, uh, you know these really troubling signs of of uh, of those relationships, and and um, I, I think that's why it becomes incredibly important um, domestically uh, to be really really vigilant about those uh, institutional protections that are designed to pr- to protect against exactly those kinds of political. Uh, 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 you know, influence and, and improper influence, um, uh, you know, so that we can uh, look at our allies and, um, uh, you know, in, in good faith and, uh, uh, you know, sort of retain some degree of moral credibility uh, and, and predictability that, that we cannot, uh, our foreign policy and, and our loyalty is not, uh, is not for sale. Okay. Um, let's move on to object lessons. Uh Reportedly, uh, people went to the movies last weekend in record numbers. Interesting. I guess. Escapism, anyway? <laughs> I think escapism was... A, and um, I went to the movies. Uh, Doctor Strange was awesome, but I really want to see Doctor Strange. So awesome. <clears throat> but I saw a movie that I had been dying to see, and I cannot recommend it enough. And I think rational security listeners in particular will like this film, which is uh, Arrival. Which is, I'm not giving anything away about the plot, uh, is the story of these 12 alien spacecraft that suddenly and with no warning show up at 12 seemingly random places on the planet. And Amy Adams uh, plays a linguist who is brought in to try and figure out how to talk to the aliens. Uh, it is a beautiful film. It is a subtle film. It is a challenging film. Uh, we're talking really, I mean, this is artful. I think this is a best picture worthy uh, 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 candidate um, kind of has like also a stunning rating on Rotten Tomatoes. It has like ninety six percent, which is unheard of. Um, it, but it's really a beautiful film. Don't think of it just as a sci fi film. I'm not going to talk about anything in the plot. But if you were at all interested in international relations, negotiations, signaling, conflict, all this stuff, you will want to see this movie. Wow. Uh, and in a weird way, it could not have probably arrived at a more perfect time because <laughs> there's there's just a lot of Thematic. Uh, uh, Say the name of the movie again. Arrival. 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 Quite a recommendation. Yeah, Thank I you. can't recommend this. My favorite movie of the year so far, and she is amazing. Like she should be nominated for the Oscar for this performance. She's that good. Yeah. Wow. I wouldn't expect it from a sci-fi film. Yeah. All right. I thought she was a great. Uh, you know, uh, what was the Disneyish one where she? Oh, what was where she? Where she ended up in New York. Oh, is it like a, Enchanted, a, something like that? Enchanted yeah. or something? Yeah, she's great. I, I love her. Maybe she'll be Secretary of Defense. Oh, please. <laughs> we could use her. We could so use her. She's smart. Uh, ben, you have an object lesson to share? I do. I have four object lessons, oh actually. God. There are four tweets that I tweeted this morning. I have declared my candidacy for president. <laughs> Oh. Um, and of I'm your homeowners not, association? I'm sorry? Of your homeowners association? No, no, of the United States. Oh. Um, in the am, electoral college? In the electoral college only. I'm not asking for public votes. But I, I feel that the, um, that the institution of the electoral college has a public resonance today that we should at least think about. Uh, uh, the design of the Electoral College was intended to put a layer of maturity, sanity, and, um, and, uh, uh, second thought, second guessing, uh, slowness between the public and the selection of the president. Plus a bunch of white men. Um, and, you, you know, I, like, like all things born in, in 1789, it has elements of original sin to be sure. But I think at no time 
since its uh, inception has the argument for the independent vote of every independent elector been more salient than today? Um, and so this morning I tweeted the following. Tweet number one, to GOP electors with qualms about putting Trump in office who cannot bring themselves to vote for Hillary Clinton, do something. Heck, vote for me. Tweet number two, come to think of it, I am hereby declaring my candidacy for president in the Electoral College, seeking the votes only of Trump electors. Tweet number three. If you are a Trump elector, but also a patriot alarmed at what this man has done and will do, and if you can't vote for Hillary, hashtag vote Wittis. I will discuss with any elector who wants to. Hashtag vote Wittis. Um, so I think uh, rational security li listeners should tweet. I would note that if I get enough electoral votes to deny Trump a majority in the Electoral College, then the House of Representatives, pursuant to a very peculiar procedure, would pick the president. It would almost certainly be a, Frank Gaffney. a conservative <laughs> uh, Republican of some sort, but I suspect it wouldn't be Donald Trump. And that would be an incredible public service uh, on the part of House Republicans. And it would be an incredible public service on the part of any elector who wants to uh, create that possibility for uh, for the House of Representatives to choose a conservative Republican who is not Donald Trump. And I offer my name as a vehicle through which uh, members of the House, uh, members of the Electoral College can exercise a certain conscience objection to what uh, the populace in its lack of wisdom decided to do in this situation. You're assuming that it can't get worse. And I would say that if you're throwing it to the House of Representatives, it can always get worse. Um, remember, it's a majority of state delegations. And so and 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 many and a bunch of those state delegations are Democrats. So you'd have to get a Democratic controlled. So you would have to get um, somebody who could get a majority. I think you would almost it's very hard to imagine you would get a worse outcome than Donald Trump. And th those are frankly dice I would I would happily roll. So I really like listening to this conversation in the same way I've been trying to get someone who like really believes that we're living in a computer simulation to just like talk me to sleep at night because these like the liberal fantasies I find um, mm -hmm. both absurd and also um, deeply, deeply comforting. The Messiah um, fantasies. Mm -hmm. yeah. So I'm, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm not saying this is likely to happen. I'm not. I'm just saying for those electors who want an alternative – uh, the Wittis campaign exists and I will, uh, I will, and I will address the House of Representatives on, um, if, if need be, uh, in order to, uh, express the, uh, my, my feelings about how a patriot responds to this situation. My only question is what did Paul Ryan promise you in return? Because this has been his master plan all along. Look, if we could trade <laughs> Donald Trump for Paul Ryan in the White House, that is a huge, huge. Oh my god! Win. This oh is my, like so this like is House of Cards Paul season Ryan five, right here. Like a you know <laughs> hashtag from God. Bon, bon chance. All right. <clears throat> well, that brings us to the end of the podcast. Rational Security is a production of Spaghetti on the Wall Productions. You can find our show archive at spaghettionthewallproductions.com. Uh, when you follow us or tweet us on Twitter at RATL Security. Hashtag vote with us if you so choose. <laughs> if you want to get behind this campaign, I mean, specify hey. Ben or Tammy. It has eleven be. retweets yeah, yeah, so actually, far. Yeah. <laughs> the hashtag it's really... does not specify which with us. Uh, you know, if people want to vote for tomorrow with us, uh, you know, I will happily cede all electoral <laughs> votes. I to hear her. and announce my endorsement like tomorrow, tomorrow, tomorrow for you. President you. President there, there, no part of my ego is wrapped. Up. No part of my ego is wrapped up in this. I'm not looking to be president. I'm not looking to do a 60 right. minutes interview. Just 
it is it is a strategy of denial of electoral votes right. to a man who should not get 270 of them. All right. Well, tweet us maybe your other candidates too at RTL Security. <laughs> uh, when you download the podcast from iTunes or Stitch or your favorite podcaster, please make sure to leave a rating and comments. You can hashtag vote with us in the comments if you want, <laughs> as long as you leave a five-star rating. Um, our audio engineer is Quinta Jurassic. The show is produced and edited by Jen Howell. Our music was performed this week by Donald Trump and the Angry Mail Van. Yeah. Okay. Like that? Yeah. A little play on yeah. Mail Van. Got that. Caught the emphasis. Yeah, I got M-A-L-E. the double on there. Caught that emphasis yeah. like he caught that Mail Van. <laughs> uh, no, of course, our music is performed by Sophia Yan, as always, who, um, you know, if she's got room in Hong Kong, Maybe, you know, we can She's always... Safely abroad. <laughs> safely abroad. I don't think President Xi has actually called Donald Trump yet. Has he? I don't know. Don't know. Nobody knows. That's Nobody the fun knows. part of all of this. Sophia, find out for us. Uh, on behalf of my good friend Smarakoff and Wittis, Ben Wittis, future presidents perhaps, and Susan Hennessy, off to the UK, I'm Shane Harris. We'll talk to you next week. Thanks for listening. 